Hi all. Last week we left you in 1979 with Louis Minacchio posting bail for charges he had been facing for over a decade. The 1968 murders of Rudy Maffeo and Anthony Malay led to the conviction of Robert Almonte in May of 1969. In a normal story, that would have been the end, but no. The following month, John J. Red Kelly, or as we refer to him, Jack, was arrested for the December 1968 Brinks robbery. What followed was hardly anything but normal. Today we'll recap the events leading up to the murders of Rudy Maffeo and Anthony Malay and discuss the events in so-called investigation that led to the second Maffeo-Malay murder trial. We originally planned to also cover the trial today, but there are too many stories, twists and turns to cram into one episode. It will be mid-season before we get back to Louis Minacchio. And I'm still hoping he contacts us. <laughs> Hey, anything is possible, but I'm not holding my breath. Some of our listeners think you might be listening. Oh, ye of little faith. Don't get all biblical on me now. All right, enough of the banter. Let's go all the way back to 1928. Don't panic. We aren't staying there for long. But in Nina's research, she came across an interesting connection between Raymond Patriarca and the scene of the Maffeo Malay murders, Pannoni's Market. I can finally tell everyone what I found out about Pannoni's. In late February 1928, Patriarca and Ben Tilly were arrested for stealing a safe from Angelo Morocco's grocery store at 282 Pacasset Ave in Providence. What would later be known as Pannoni's Market. Do you think Raymond remembered it was the same location? Well, I mean, 40 years had passed, and with all the stress Raymond was under, I doubt it. For our listeners who want to hear more about that robbery and Raymond's early criminal days, they should listen to our most popular episode where we introduced Raymond Patriarca. And Ben Tilly, who will be one of our subjects in a couple of weeks. By the way, that episode was also our most disliked one. Guys, we are allowed to have our own opinions. So are all of you, and we don't have to agree with each other. It's okay to disagree. A lost art form. Sadly, all of those years in the debate club are wasted. All right, before we move on, I want to tell my favorite story from that robbery. A 10-year-old boy saw Raymond crumple up one of the stolen checks from the safe and toss it over a fence. The kid picked it up and headed to the police station. Much to the boy's delight, there was Raymond already standing in the middle of the station. The little boy marched up and handed Raymond the check saying, here, mister, you lost this. <laughs> Classic. I also love the fact that Raymond had the knob of the safe in his pocket at the time of his arrest, so the check probably wouldn't have made that much of a difference. Also classic, I doubt Raymond wanted to admit to that crime in his later days, not exactly the image of a major crime boss. Okay, no ruffled feathers, guys. Well, moving on from that, I want to discuss the connections between the families on both sides of the murders. We need one of those fancy interactive whiteboards to sort that out. You're telling me. I think it might be better to go in reverse this time. Okay, good idea. At the time of the murders of Rudy Maffeo and Anthony Malay in April of 68, Rudy Maffeo, who was still married but separated from his wife, had been having a lengthy affair with Mary Bakari, the estranged wife of Harry Bakari. On August 7th, 1966, at 1240 in the morning, an attempt was made on Rudy Maffeo's life by his brother-in-law, Joe Buffy Bakari, and Joe's nephews, Raymond and Louie. Four shots were fired into Rudy's apartment while he was sitting in his living room watching TV. The three Bakaris were arrested on attempted murder charges, and Joe Bakari was also charged with assaulting a police officer 
and illegal possession of a firearm after he attacked a cop during questioning at police headquarters. The following day, the men pleaded innocent to all of the charges. As a result of his arrest, Joe Bakari was unable to walk his daughter down the aisle at her wedding later that month. Now, if you've managed to follow that tangled mess so far, you realize that Joe's daughter was also Rudy's niece. Joe was married to Rudy's wife's sister. A couple of weeks before, Rudy and Willie Maffeo and Joe Bakari's nephew, Joseph Maffeo Jr., was shot in the leg while standing in his driveway. The prior evening, just 16 days after the slaying of Willie, the second Second floor apartment of Rudy was set on fire. A little bit more about the intermarriage. Do we have to? I know we've been over it in two previous episodes, but it's important because it shows that there were others who had motive to kill the Maffeos besides Raymond Patriarca. I know. I feel like I should warn everyone to pause and get out their notepads. Oh, don't be so dramatic. The Bakari Maffeo family tree is in WikiTree if anyone needs a visual, and I'm constantly adding to it. The Maffeos were also related to Jackie Nazarian by marriage. Jackie was arrested for the murder of Tiger Belletto. Rudy's mistress, Mary Bakari, was living in the late Tiger Belletto's house at the time of Rudy's murder. For clarification, Tiger was killed in 1955, but his son was living in the house at the time Mary was residing there in 1968. Nina is still trying to find a connection between Mary and the Belletto family. Well, maybe there isn't a familial relationship, but that's the address the feds had for her when they questioned her about the murder. Okay. And Jackie Nazarian had been dead since the early 1960s. Correct. Jackie's wife, Sarah, was the daughter of Gaetano Bacari and Angelina Baroni. Two of her sisters were married to Maffeos, her younger sister, Angelina, to Savino Maffeo Jr., and her older sister, Rosie, to Joe, Joe Maffeo. As Laura mentioned a few minutes ago, Joe Buffy Bakari and Rudy Maffeo were also brothers-in-law through their wives, the Curia sisters. The Bakari's court appearances continued throughout late 1966 and into 1967. Rudy refused to testify against his family, and so the only thing the cops could get Buffy Bakari on was the weapons possession charge. Finally, in September of 1967, Bakari was sentenced to one year in Rhode Island State Prison. In the middle of June that same year, there was a drive-by shooting at Joe Maffeo's house in Cranston. Joe's wife, Rosney Bakari, was coming was home when two shots were fired. Joe Maffeo wasn't at home because he was at the police department filing a report that his son's car had been shot at on Federal Hill. <laughs> I can't keep track of it all. We quipped in the last episode that Rudy Schiara was arrested for nearly every murder that took place in Providence. Well, that included the murder of Jackie Nazarian. During the murder trial, a witness claimed that Willie Maffeo had been at the scene when Rudy Schiara killed Jackie. According to Anthony Ritchie Jr., Willie had tried to pull the two men apart but failed in his efforts, and that's when Jackie got shot. After Schiara was acquitted, Willie was charged with Jackie's murder, but the government couldn't get an indictment. Back to the events leading up to the murders of Rudy Maffeo and Anthony Malay. Willie Maffeo was murdered by an unknown assailant in the street on July 13, 1966. Raymond Patriarca, Henry Tamilio, and Ronnie Cassessa would later be charged, tried, and convicted on conspiracy charges based on Joe Barboza's testimony. They weren't convicted until late 1968. Before we move on to the investigation, here's a brief recap of the murders of Rudy and Anthony. 
On the Saturday after Easter, April 20th, 1968, just before 3 p.m., Rudy Maffeo and Anthony Malay were gunned down in Pannoni's Market at 282 Pocasset Ave in the Silver Lake section of Providence, Rhode Island by two masked men. Anthony Malay was shot from a distance of roughly six feet away near the ice cream freezer, and Rudy Maffeo from a distance of about three feet just near the front door of the store with his 38 in hand. The shots tore Maffeo's left side apart and hit Malay directly in the face. A single copper jacketed lead bullet, a 30 caliber cartridge case, and five shotgun shells were found at the scene. The murder weapons were a carbine and a shotgun. Rudy's brother Savino was present, as was Mary Bakari. Savino suffered a heart attack, as he did previously when he heard the news that their brother Willie had been killed, but this time he never recovered and passed away the following year on June 3rd. Mary was in Pannoni shopping with Rudy, as he had become their routine during their relationship when he was shot down. The initial suspects in the double homicide were Rudy Schiara, Dickie Calais, Johnny Rossi, Richard J. Katroki, Robert Fairbrothers, Alex Mandine, Andrew and Louis Minacchio, the Badway brothers, Raymond, Malcolm, and Joseph, and Richard Ricci. In mid-May 1968, the local authorities looked into another pair of suspects, asking for help from Washington, D.C., and identifying a latent fingerprint found on the license plate of the abandoned getaway car. The prints they provided to D.C. for possible matches belonged to another nephew of Buffy Bakari's, Richard, and his business partner, Charles White. But their prints did not match the latent fingerprints, and the locals were forced to look elsewhere. Less than a week after the negative response from D.C. came back on the prints, Robert Almonte was charged with the double homicide. He was convicted the following May and sentenced to life in prison. Jack Kelly was arrested not long after Almonte's conviction, and a massive investigation began based on Jack's tales. And let's not forget a large dose of Dad's tales and deliberate misinformation. When Jack came forward with his story, the authorities from the U.S. Attorney General to the Boston FBI Field Office Special Agent in Charge were very concerned about moving forward with the investigation as Almonte was already doing a life bid for the Maffeo Malay hit. But the feds were not going to let that pesky little detail get in their way. The arrest warrants were issued and the first batch were executed on August 12, 1969 with the arrests of Robert Fairbrothers, Johnny Rossi, and Maurice Prolerner. The following week, Rudy Schiara was arrested with not a little help from Frank Imbruglia. Raymond was already serving time for Willie Maffeo's murder in Atlanta, so the authorities didn't have to look far for him. Frank Venditoli and Louis Minacchio were on the lam. And the FBI informants from Boston to New York were spinning magnificent stories. One former Fed, John B. Green, was now a criminal attorney collecting statements from some of those informants. The informants were reporting on what they'd been telling Green. Of course, Dad was in the middle of that mix. Pro Learner's defense, the mob, and other local thieves were very concerned about what Jack was going to say on the stand, and they all wanted to make sure that Dad was on board to undermine Jack's testimony. But the reality was that Jack and Richie had plotted and schemed for months about exactly what Richie would say in both his statements to the authorities and on the stand. Jack wasn't just doling out justice to who he felt was his enemy, but by getting others off, he was doling out his revenge against the authorities for their years of harassment. 
Well, let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. Two weeks after the arrests of Lerner, Rossi, and Fair Brothers, Jack appeared at their bail hearing. That same day, an informant told the feds that Pro would testify at a later date that Jack had contracted him to kill Tommy Richards, and Pro refused. According to the informant, that is why Jack was testifying against Pro. On September 3rd, 1969, FBI informant BS936 reported to Special Agent Gerard Komen that Pro felt that Roy Appleton and Billy Kenny would testify at the Maffeo Malay murder trial, corroborating much of Jack's testimony. The informant also said he heard that Pro was making arrangements to take out Roy and Billy Kenny. Meanwhile, Richie had been telling his handlers, Komen, that Rudy Schiara was orchestrating the hit on Kenny. <laughs> Oh, better safe than sorry. BS936 also told Special Agent Komen that affidavits would be forthcoming to discredit Jack's mental competency. Unnamed individuals would give statements that on the day of the Malay Maffeo murders, Jack couldn't have possibly been in Providence area because he'd had an argument with his wife and was staying in a room at the Danish house on the Brockton Avon line. Others would testify that Jack was with them the Saturday of the killings in Providence. Now, do we think that the informant didn't know Jack was the real owner of the Danish house? But don't you think that the person did know that and it was another way to undermine the prosecution? True. Any of the informants that were close enough to Jack for their claim to seem credible would know what Jack owned and didn't own. They would also be in Dad's sphere. Dad lived to concoct outrageous stories and was extremely convincing when telling them. There he was with nothing but time on his hands. Jack was locked up, so for the time, for the first time in seven years, Dad wasn't glued to his side. Pro was in the can. Mello Merlina was on the lamb. Sonny Diaferia was out on bail. My grandmother had passed away. Mom and I were in California, and it wasn't like Dad could go out and rob in his spare time. Other than hanging around my family store and delivering groceries around Beacon Hill, he had nothing but time on his hands. After he cooked up one of his tales, he must have floated off to one of his fellow informants or a local gossip and shared his story. Before the end of the day, people were telling the same story, half of them sharing it with the feds. Well, Richie continued that practice for decades. Look at what he did with the Gardner investigation. No question about that. All right, back to this investigation. On September 27, 1969, informant BS1047 told S.A. Peroni that Sonny D'Aferio had called him two days prior and told him to meet him at Bailey's office. When he got to Bailey's office, Sonny took him to meet another lawyer who he said was representing Jerry Angelo. When they arrived at the attorney's office at 1 State Street, the informant was introduced to John B. Green. Green told the informant that he was working with Ronnie Chisholm on what he referred to as the Jack Kelly situation. Green stated that it was necessary to discredit and destroy Kelly's effectiveness as a prosecution witness. He wanted to know about Jack's medical history, dates of hospitalization, and medications taken. Jack had previously had two small heart attacks, which he kept a secret, but Dad knew about them, so chances are that he had already spread that around, too. <laughs> During the interview, Green told the informant that he was a former FBI agent and therefore knew how the FBI functioned. Green instructed the informant not to submit to an interview by any FBI agent. Obviously, Green was unaware that the man Sonny was dragging along with him was an informant. <laughs> BS 1047 told Special Agent Peroni that he believed that Green was more interested in the Maffeo Malay case than the Brinks trial based on the limited amount of time Green had devoted to discussing the heist. 
The informant felt that it, that was because the LCN was interested in the murder trial. The fact that Jerry Angelo's so-called attorney, Al Horrigan, was present at the meeting and gave the, quote, definite impression of being in charge of the inquiry, end quote, verified that the LCN was a little more than just interested in Jack's testimony. Green told the informant that he might have to sign a certain affidavit in order to preclude him from becoming involved as a witness in support of Jack. Just so you get the picture, former FBI agent turned defense attorney John Green was holding a meeting with not one, but two longtime FBI confidential informants. At the same time, and they were all informing on each other. <laughs> from what we could deduce from the Fed's numbering of CIs, Horrigan had been an informant longer than Richie at that point. <laughs> BS 1047 went to meet Green again on the morning of October 1st. Green knew all about Jack's strategy of parking illegally and getting parking tickets from the BPD, and Green asked the informant if he had any information about it. The informant did know about the tickets and gave Green all the details he knew about Jack's car at the time, a 1968 Blue Mercury, the same car that Jack had told the feds that he had been driving at the time of the Maffeo Malay hit. But he said he didn't know where Green could find the tickets. Some of our listeners might recall that Richie would park Jack's car in a conspicuous location where it was certain to be ticketed when they were scoping out a robbery that Jack was planning. Richie reported to his handlers at least twice about that practice. No doubt he shared that with BS 1047 and others, including Green. <laughs> No question. 1047 used another one of Dad's favorite techniques during the tables on your Inquisitor. The informant told his handler that he had some questions for Green, asking him who exactly he was representing. Green told him he was working for some people in Boston. Not satisfied with that answer, the informant asked again, and Green answered that he was working for Ronnie Chisholm. But who was Ronnie working for, the informant wanted to know, at which point Green repeated some people in Boston. Ronnie was Jerry and Julo's defense attorney, so we know who those people were. The informant also claimed that he asked Green why he should trust him since he knew that he was a former Fed. Green stated that he had been checked out by his clients. He also told the CI that he had worked with Lawrence O'Donnell during the Teddy Deegan murder case and that they'd been held in contempt by Judge Felix Forty. On October 3rd, Frank Imbruglia told Dennis Condon that Ronnie Chisholm had hired Condon's former colleague, John B. Green, to interview prospective witnesses in the Brinks robbery trial and the murder of Rudy Maffeo. Imbruglia told Condon that Green had already interviewed Roy Appleton and was thinking about inter interviewing Richie. Green's plan was to get statements from these people in order to prevent them from testifying at trial. But as I already said, we know that Green was talking to Richie because he couldn't have had the information he was asking the other informants about if Richie hadn't told him. <laughs> Exactly. On October 23rd, 1969, informant BS1201 PC told Special Agent McWeeny that F. Lee Bailey had three hundred dollars to $400,000 of Jack's money and that it was Jack who arranged for Bailey to defend Rudy Schiara in the Zoglio murder case. I need to interrupt you. Why would Jack arrange for Bailey to defend Rudy Schiara in October of 1968 only to give him up less than six months later? 
The thing that screams madness to me is the list of the indicted on the same day in October of 68. Rudy Schiara, Bobby Fairbrothers, and Ronaldo Di Pantrantonio were indicted for the Zoglio murder. Louis the Fox Taglianetti was indicted for the 1962 murder of Jackie Nazarian. Remember, we mentioned earlier that at first Rudy was indicted for Jackie's murder. After he was acquitted, Willie Maffea was then charged with Jackie's murder, but the authorities were unable to get an indictment. So now we had Louis the Fox Taglianetti charged with Willie's murder. Louis Minocchio with Jackie's murder, sorry. Louis Minocchio was charged with soliciting the murder of Willie Maffeo. And as we also mentioned a little earlier, Raymond Patriaca was charged and later convicted of conspiracy to murder Willie, basically the usual suspects. You forgot to mention that the same day that he was indicted for the Zaglio murder, Schiara was also charged with killing Angelo De Palma. Who wasn't Rudy charged with killing? Was he ever actually convicted of murder though? I don't think so. They convicted him on weapons charges in the 80s. We briefly touched on that story in the hit parade of 65, and we will come back to it later in the season. And the charge here was conspiracy to murder. They never got him as the trigger man. Well, it didn't stop them from trying. In late October, Dad was telling Coleman about a mystery man named Jeffrey. Who was Jeffrey? <laughs> One of Dad's fictional characters. According to Dad, Jeffrey was telling prospective witnesses that they'd be compensated for cooperating with Green and Chisholm at the upcoming trial. Dad was vague about what exactly cooperating entailed. Dad also told Special Agent Coleman that the defense strategy was to question Jack's mental comp competency in an effort to discredit him to the jury. Well, Richie went into great detail describing Jeffrey, 5'9", 170 pounds, between 30 and 35, stocky with a large hooked nose and black hair. He was driving a 1969 black Lincoln, but no other clue. <laughs> because Jeffrey was a figment of dad's imagination. The description is almost the same as the guy that he gave the description for the VA robbery. He also <laughs> told Coleman that Pro's sister Carrie was acting as a messenger for both Pro and Pro's new attorney, Ronnie Chisholm. I know I said this before, but when I was doing Doing my little internship at Ronnie's office, I wish I knew that those files were a goldmine of information, as was Ronnie. Well, if only you'd known. In the meantime, BS 1047 told his handler, Special Agent Peroni, that John Green had contacted him again to meet in the next few days. Sonny D'Affario had called the informant shortly after the appointment with Green was made and told him that they also wanted to talk about Richie. You mean Green had suspic suspicions about Dad? Well, he was the only one, it seems. <laughs> On November 10th, Roy Appleton went to meet Green again. Green didn't have any questions for Roy this time. Instead, he had some things to say to him. He read Roy Jack's testimony about the Maffeo Malay murder and then read him the indictment against Jerry and Julo. They arranged another meeting and Roy left. I want to remind our listeners that Jack had made it clear to Roy that he and Dad would not be dragged into any of Jack's tales. Jack kept that promise to Roy until after Roy's death. We'll discuss that later in the season. Three days after, Sonny D'Affario and Roy met at Al Horrigan's office on Tremont Street to discuss Jack's testimony and the efforts to discredit him. Again, Horrigan seemed more interested in the double homicide. Horrigan was asked about Armand Caprioli, Nick Mancuso, and Ferris of Nantasket Beach and their relationship with Jack. And if they would be helpful to the defense or if they'd cooperate with the government. I wish I could remember details about Ferris. Maybe one of our listeners remembers him. Horrigan questioned Roy again about Jack's cars and health. He also asked about Jack's statement that he had met Pro at the scene. Quote, he pointed out that it was necessary to break that part of Kelly's story. But why was that so important, do you think? 
So I don't know if he's referring to the first time that Pro and Jack Kelly met, so how they were acquainted, or if he was referring to the time that Pro met Jack at the scene and then they went to a billiard parlor in Kenmore Square. But I assume that Horgan meant where did Jack and Pro first meet rather than some random meeting. All of them were always hanging in the scene, so you know it doesn't make much sense to, to specify that. The official story has always been that Billy Aggie introduced Pro to Jack shortly after the Plymouth Mail robbery. According to Dad, it was at Jimmy's Harborside restaurant, but I've also heard Anthony's Pier 4 was the spot. But Anthony's wasn't even open until 1963. Anyhow, Horgan must have wanted to prove that Jack was lying, but was going about it in a really weird way. Well, Jack was deliberately lying, but no one caught on, and Al Horrigan wasn't a real liar, so <laughs> I'm not sure how much he was, how skilled he was. Uh, he was leaving, but Jack was leaving escape hatches for Pro all over the place, but Ronnie and Al seemed not to notice. It would take a decade and a half for one of those escape hatches to be utilized, but that story is for later this season. I don't believe that it was deliberate on Ronnie's side. He was so focused on getting Jerry and Julo off that he was stretched too thin, and Green was busy chasing informants in their disinformation campaign. On November 14th, Imbruglia told Condon that Nikki Angiulo had told him that Jack was making another grand jury appearance, this time in a case involving five corrupt police officers. What case was that? There was no case. It was just more propaganda. And Bruglia also told Condon that Dad was telling Horgan and Green that he was in touch with the feds on a daily basis. The informants informing on the informants to informants. Ugh, stop. It's too much. On November 18th, Lerner and Fair Brothers presented motions in Rhode Island State Superior Court to allow them to inspect the minutes of the grand jury to permit the defense to see the prosecution's witness list, to see statements made by co-defendants, and to be furnished with any other evidence the attorney general had that is favorable to the defense. Additionally, a motion was submitted to permit the defense counsel to talk to Jack Kelly. The judge denied all of the motions made by Cerisi and Chisholm, a replay of the murder trial of Georgie McLaughlin. The following month, just before Christmas, Bobby Almonte was released from prison and cleared of the murder charges. They kept him locked up for four months after the others were charged for the same crime, the justice system. Following Almonte's release, Rhode Island State Attorney General Richard Israel informed the feds the trial date had been set for January 5th, 1970. Next week, we'll go through the trial, including when Jack took the stand and Raymond confronted him about Wimpy Bennett's demise. No teasers. Okay, okay. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Bye. Bye.